Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, engineer, and director of education at Blackbird Academy, Mark Rubel. First of all, YouTube made an announcement last week that it paid out over $4 billion in music royalties to the music industry. Now, consider that Spotify paid out $5 billion, and you see that YouTube is the second largest when it comes to big payouts of music royalties. Now, this is in the last 12 months. That amounts to about 33% of the total U.S. revenue that came from YouTube. As much as everybody hates YouTube, they're actually paying the bills. Now, what's interesting is that 30% came from UGC, or user-generated content, which means that if somebody uses your music on a video, YouTube automatically finds that using its content ID system, and then sends a notice out that says, okay, either you allow us to put advertisements on, or you gotta take it down. And usually people will say, well, we'd rather have the advertisement. And as a result, what ends up happening is it's a lot of extra money that gets generated for the songwriters, for the artists that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, YouTube is actually expanding its offering for artists and labels, and that's going to include direct ticket and merch sales and virtual concerts pretty soon. So there's going to be a lot of ways that you can make money from YouTube that don't really happen right now. Now, that being said, YouTube is also sending out a notice to everybody. If you're a user, if you have something on YouTube, chances are you got a notice recently. Maybe you didn't read it, but what it said was two different things that are going to affect you. One is they now have the right to monetize all your videos, whether you want them to be monetized or not. A lot of people don't want to have ads on their videos Now, you don't have a choice. YouTube decides. You get enough traffic, they're going to put an ad on there whether you want it or not. And the second thing is, if you're making money, they're going to withhold taxes, something that a lot of artists kind of recoil at. Either way, YouTube is actually making money for artists, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. There's been a long-running battle on which is better, analog or digital, when it comes to recording. And of course, there are two different camps, and this goes all the way down to vinyl records versus CDs, and some people will say, well, CD sounds better because it's quieter, and the frequency response is better, and other people will say, yes, but there's a realism in vinyl that you just don't find in a CD. And there's actually some truth to that. It turns out that after a lot of study, a number of things have been found out about the human body that digital audio doesn't really take into account. So for instance, in real life, our whole body is a vibration sensor. And the neurons of our body don't encode sound like CDs do. Digital recording samples the sonic world basically every 23 microseconds, 
Whether there's a sound there or not, now this is, of course, a CD, 23 microseconds and 44.1 kilohertz. On the other hand, each neuron basically waits for a sound wave to arrive and then fires off a single pulse. And all the neurons of our body do that. So a sound wave striking lots of neurons at once will fire a lot of pulses at exactly the same time. That volley of pulses arrives at the brain, and then the brain knows the exact time that that original sound wave arrived. And this is down to the microsecond level. So how does all of this translate in technology? Well, so far the guiding principle of the nervous system is to record only a single bit of amplitude at the exact time of arrival. And since amplitudes are fixed, all the information is in the timing. So CD sampling every 23 milliseconds, but our nervous system needs 10 times that. That means there's 90% of the info needed for realism that's missing in digital, but yet it exists in vinyl and it even exists in the old phone systems that we used to have, plain old telephone system, POTS. Now, you can think of this as a car wash. Take your car to a car wash, and if the wash is just shooting out pulses, whether your car is in there or not, pulses of water are shooting out. That's like digital audio, and each sample is a pulse of water. On the other hand, what analog is like is there's no water that's shooting out, but as soon as your car goes through, there's a continuous stream, and the bigger the car, the bigger the stream. That's the neurons of our body kind of figuring all that out. Now, what all this means is that sooner or later, we're going to require some sort of new system, new way of recording that's going to quantify sound in terms of amplitude, which you do now, frequency distribution, but suddenness and repetition at, at a higher resolution, much higher resolution than we can possibly record things right now. The upside of this is we should be able to get real 3D realism through stereo. And it could, in fact, make immersive audio just the way we know it with multiple speakers obsolete, even though mixing in immersive audio will pretty much be the same. The way it will be reproduced could be way different. So there are a lot of things to look forward to on the horizon when it comes to recording and playback of audio. And they can only be better than they are today. My guest this week is Mark Rubel, who's produced thousands of recordings from his Pogo Studios for clients like Alison Krauss, Rascal Flats, Fall Out Boy, Ludacris, Adrian Ballou, Luther Allison, and many more. Mark also works as a consultant and legal expert witness in the fields of audio and copyright, and he's taught audio, music technology, music business, and the history of rock to thousands of students since 1985 at various colleges and universities before becoming director of education for the Blackbird Academy in Nashville. During the interview, we spoke about how to make the most with the least amount of gear, the learning experience of working with acoustic music, the effect of being around excellence, and much more. I spoke with Mark via Zoom from Blackbird Studios in Nashville. I want to go back to the beginning with you. Tell me how you got started in the business. I know you were a player first, so tell me about that. I started playing bass guitar through a series of 
serendipitous events uh, when I was 12. And right about the same time, my friends and I, this is young, age, age 12, started uh, working as interns at the Experimental Music Studio in, uh, at the University of Illinois in Champaign, where we lived, uh, which was the first electronic music studio in North America, at, at least of a uh, state university. It was a really cool place. Robert Moog was there and all these people, Morton Sabotnik, mm. John Cage came through and so forth. Uh, so that was a fascinating place for us to be. And I, I started learning about technology there. I, one of my stories about that place is one day they wheeled in about a six foot tall, double wide rack of flashing lights. And we were all amazed, you know, what is this thing? Uh, that young Mark is a sequencer. Wow, is this huge thing? It probably cost, who knows, $50,000. Um, started there. And um, so my friends and I would record ourselves. Actually, my interest in recording goes back to when I was eight and my parents gave me a little, uh, a little uh, handheld battery-powered tape recorder and I would spend a lot of time recording, which was before I had a record player. So I was actually making recordings before I was listening to them. Mm, very cool. So getting in the band? Um, so I got started playing in bands when I was 12, playing rock and roll bands through the, through the 70s, really every imaginable kind of music, you know, playing in country bands and holiday inn bands and disco bands and jazz bands and so forth, all of which, of course, are great training to become a recording engineer producer. As a bass player? Yes, a bass player, the rare bass player that starts as a bass player, not a frustrated guitar player. And I still am. I've been in one band for 41 years now. <laughs> you think we'd be good by now. Who can say that? Wow. Not many people. Um, yeah, so, which has been a wonderful adventure. Uh, the guitar player in the band is actually, um, I would say my audio mentor is a guy named Tim Veer, who's a senior applications engineer for Shure Brothers Microphones, a guy who really knows a lot about stuff. He's a former rocket scientist and so forth, really an, an interesting fellow. So I got to learn a lot from him on the way to and from gigs, partly just trying to keep each other awake, driving to all these shows in Iowa or whatever. And <clears throat> and uh, we became partners in a recording studio the same year that we started the band, 1980. Is that Pogo? The studio was originally called Faithful Sound, which was a mistake to name it that. People mistakenly thought we were a gospel studio. It was named after Todd Rundgren record. <sighs> so we had a framed picture of Todd Rundgren over the window and so on. Uh, it was called Faithful Sound. The, the, we had an even worse name for the original studio, which was Supreme Being Studio. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, so that was in a little house, uh, 100-year-old house. Our rent was $100 a month in this place in Urbana, Illinois, uh, just about 20 feet from some very active train tracks, which was the world's worst place to put a recording studio. That's why it's so cheap, though, right? It was cheap. It was 100 bucks a month. The rent went up $50 by, an, uh, by $50 when we got my dog, Pogo. So when it, doubled, it went 50, up by 50%, so we were paying $150 a month. And we had a, a great deal of fun. We started out with a four-track machine, and uh, we had a Universal Audio 610 console, the famous vacuum tube board that we'd bought from Bill Putnam Sr., who was from Danville, Illinois, about 45 minutes from us, and I think saw himself in us. And so he sold us two of his consoles, one of the United Western consoles, and one from Chicago Universal Studio. And then we bought a third console from a Polka studio in New Jersey. And there's some funny stories that are associated with that. And uh, there we were, we had 12 channels of gorgeous vacuum tube sound, a terrible solid state 
summing bus, a four-track Tascam machine, very little else. Oddly, a pair of Neumann U67 microphones, which I still have, which is Wow. Good. You don't have the consoles? Unfortunately, no. And that was dumb because those consoles are very valuable. Now, I have nine of the Universal Audio 1008 Pre's that were in it and eight EQs that I got later. Uh, so we, uh, unfortunately, we don't have those consoles anymore. I, I wish we did and I could retire on them. Yeah, right. Well, I want to know about the Poker Studio console. So we had that, uh, the Faithful Sound Studio for a few years and then closed it. I moved into a big warehouse building in downtown Champaign, Illinois, right? Again, not quite as close to the train tracks, about a block away in a big brick building. And after a couple of years hiatus where I was mainly playing this silly rock and roll band, I decided to reopen the studio myself. Started out with a Studio Master console, which was actually a pretty good little board. Kept adding expander modules to it, and that was cool. And then in 1987, I decided to get a good console. And I really wanted an API console, and I looked around and found a broker who had one that was in a uh, warehouse in Los Angeles, which was a custom-built Domitio board. So it's a custom-built API board. It was built for Studio C uh, at Fantasy Studio. Mm, wow. They made American Beauty by the Grateful Dead, but on a different console. And uh, But they'd done a bunch of stuff on my board at, at Fantasy. It says Fantasy on the sheet metal. Beautiful thing, 24 inputs, all hand-wired, no circuit boards other than the, the, it's basically just a rack of 312 cards, API 312s that you fit in underneath. And, and then, uh, you know, a rack where you just across the middle, where you can put the API equalizers. But other than that, no circuit boards, literally point to point, hand-wired, Belden cable, huge patch bay. It has patch points between every component. So you can literally patch in and out of the pad. You can patch in and out of the mic line switch. You can patch in and out of the mute switch. Uh, just Frank Demidio got carried away. So it's got a, th- I don't know, three and a half foot tall stack of, you know, quarter inch military patch bays just for the console, which makes it very flexible and also very minimal. So you can just go into one of these beautiful Demidio modified 312 preamps and go straight to tape, which is the way that I usually do record. But it had input-output switching for every channel, so it has zero latency. You know, I guess switch and hear the signal going in, which is really great to get a groove. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. It just sounds wonderful. And in 1987, it was very much out of mode. So I was actually able to afford it. You know, it was a time where everybody wanted bigger SSLs and more stuff. And I was lucky enough to get to have this thing and also smart enough not to cannibalize it and turn it into modules and sell it off. And I hope when I'm done with it, that the same will happen. It will continue as a, as a unit because there's something about the sound and vibe of a console and having a consistent sound on every channel that I think can really give a record some character and personality and coherence. I think the fact that it's smaller is probably working in its favor for that because if it was larger, then you think, oh yeah, well, I can just take these eight modules out. But not if there's 24, but then 24 is kind of like an ideal number anymore. It is. I mean, it, you know, 24 in, and then it has a 24 channel passive monitor section. So you can get 48 out of it and through various acrobatics, get more channels and that kind of thing. But it is, it was very funny to go through this evolution where at the time people were going, well, I mean, it was shortly after that, people would say, well, you don't even need a console. Why do you need this old, you know, boat anchor? 
uh, everything's going to be digital. And everyone goes digital. And then they start to say, you know, well, then we've got latency in the headphone system. Yeah, this, this thing doesn't have any latency. And then you go, and they go, well, we really need analog preamps and EQs. And yeah, that's in here as well. And then it's, uh, and then they go, well, uh, you know, we really would like to have some, uh, some analog mixing. That's here too. And eventually you end up with a working functioning console. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how long was the studio going? It was going for quite a long time, right? We had uh, various versions of the studio with a little break in between for 33 years in Champaign and Urbana, Illinois. So it went from 1980 to 2013 when I moved to Nashville. And now I have a, an iteration of the studio in my backyard. We bought uh, some property from Steve Earle, the singer-songwriter, and his engineer, Ray Kennedy, who's an amazing human being. Where now we, before we were living over the studio, now we live in front of the studio and we have a nice large building that's very oddly laid out, very much like the Illinois studio. So it's a bit of deja vu, but it's bigger. It has more isolation booths and so forth and nice clean power and so on. So it is, uh, I have it again, but I'm not doing much work in my own studio these days because I'm concentrating on teaching and working at Blackbird Studio and also writing a book. And that's, so I've uh, mothballed the studio until I'm done with all of that. Yeah, yeah. I get the feeling that you had a, an analog tape machine and everything. You had a Studer, right? So you were really going to that whole analog world and trying to stay there, and that seemed like it was kind of a trademark. It it was, but I would say not not so much anymore. I'm I'm mostly on Pro Tools these days. I have a functioning Studer A80, uh, and and occasionally, you know, we will go to two inch and then transfer into Pro Tools or even keep something on tape, but. I'm not very hardcore about it. I, I, these days, I'm mostly in the Pro Tools world. And actually, more and more these days, mixing in, in the box, which is surprising after decades of mixing on a hardware console with a bunch of hardware gear. I have many, many compressors and lots of uh, interesting uh, old stuff. So, it, you know, it, I actually deliberately try to change my methods as often as I can and, and just not do it the same way all the time. Even if I'm in the box, I, I change my mixing methods around. And the same is true for recording. So some days it's, uh, you know, track to Pro Tools, but mixed to quarter inch or any number of variations. I think we've all softened on that. Everyone was so militant for the longest time about the whole analog versus digital thing. And it's gotten better. And we've all seen the upside of, of being digital and the downside isn't as great as it used to be. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm not dogmatic about it. I love mixing in the box just for the recallability and uh, the ability to get uh, gain perspective and be able to walk away from it and come back to it is, is very important to me. And I actually don't mind the method, even if I don't have my hands on something. I, I really don't mind it. I actually like it very much. And, you know, the parts that I don't miss about the analog tape machines is having them break down and having to maintain them. And especially when I was in Champaign, Illinois, where there aren't a lot of analog tape machine technicians around. You know, I know people like to complain about Pro Tools and so forth, but it's remarkably stable if you think about all the stuff that we had to go through before and, and functional and well, you know, well-crafted and all of that. So I'm perfectly happy. I think one of the things that students don't understand is the weeping and gnashing of teeth that we go through when we do a recall on a console and about how it would never come back, no matter what. It would just never come back. And, you know, trying to get that last one, two, three percent was just nerve-wracking. That it is. 
one of my favorite quotes, it may not even be a, be true, but it's a funny quote anyway, that somebody said that George Harrison had said, if we don't like the mix, why do we want to recall it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, then there's the other story. I think this was of Tom Dowd, or, or it might be, be Glenn Johns. I'm not sure. We, we, one of those, but it was the going through a mix, they didn't like it. They spent several hours, and he just take all the faders and... <laughs> completely down and start all over and it was no big deal and i can remember it was like that for us too especially in the the earlier days before it got to uh you know when you hit 24 track it, it was kind of hard to do that but before it wasn't so bad mm-hmm. and, and that's something that's for some reason hard to do in pro tools to just start over to mm-hmm. sort of metaphorically pull all the faders down and pull all the patch chords i guess you can go back to an earlier saved as version but the a couple of the things i think are missing from uh, kind of in the box mixing are that pull all the faders down and restart and also what vance powell calls serendipitous mixing where you start mixing you leave your console set for a previous mix and you just bring up the next thing on it and you and you have happy accidents yeah background vocals are running through the leslie or the the bass is running through the the fuzz or the tape echo and you it's it's a little easier to do random things that end up being uh, serendipitous or where you can exercise my favorite recording technique, which is saying, I meant to do that. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Well, it, you know, it's kind of the same thing with, I'm sure you run into this, where you have students that go, well, why should I use aux channels and sends when I can just put it you know, on an insert? And one of the reasons why is, well, try it on a snare drum and see what happens, or try it on whatever, and, and all of a sudden you go, oh, wow, didn't expect that. So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. That's something we were just doing in class where we uh, just did a whole segment on affecting the effects. Hmm. So when the, when the effects are on a separate channel, then you can put effects on those and the effects on those and you get cascading systems and that could be really amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's something we took for granted for so so long and it's kind of a different world now unless you see, you've come from that world, you don't think that way. I, I think the learning process is reversed from what it was in that if you started out like I did with four tracks, for example, you have to make the most of those four tracks. You have to figure out how to just get the most out of a limited amount of equipment. And that makes you creative and resourceful. And then every time you get another piece of equipment, it's a wonderful opening of a, of a Vista. And it's like, wow, we got an eight track machine. Amazing. We're going to do it eight whole tracks. And then you explore it and eventually you learn how to bounce and move things around. And then you get one new compressor and it's a whole world of, exploring it. So it's, it's this um, gradual building process where you start with the, the very skeleton of it and then you're able to embellish on it. I call it sculptural. It's sort of like building a wire armature and then putting the muscles and the clay and things on it. Uh, but I think that the modern way of learning is more what I'd call subtractive. If somebody opens up their computer and they're faced with a thousand great sounding loops, a thousand compressors, uh, all the pull techs, you know, more pull techs than any studio ever had. And it's wonderful to have that power, but it's very hard to end up having the focus and discipline to narrow it down. Mm, So you're subtracting from an infinite number of possibilities as opposed to building up from a a severe number of limitations. And either way, I think you can get at a mastery or understanding of it, but it's it's a completely different process. And I have to take that into account when I'm teaching people. I want to get to you teaching at Blackbird in a second, but before that happened, you were also teaching, you know, when you're back in Champagne, it was right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very early on, I started teaching uh, recording classes at my studio through the local community college. I inherited a class from another guy who'd had a home studio, which meant that I was teaching the subject when I'd been doing it professionally for five years. And by profession, I mean full-time, which uh, probably a little bit early, but I did my best. Uh, but I had dozens and dozens of, of uh, sections I would teach, often two sections in the fall, two in the spring, one in the summer, so five sections a year. At some point, I got a, a notification in the mail. It was a congratulations, you've now taught 80 semesters. Like, what? Wow. <laughs> How old am I? Uh, it was a wonderful learning experience to, to be able to try to pass things along, and it's really good for one's understanding of the process to have to be able to explain it and answer all the questions that you'd never thought of that come from the students. So I taught that for a long time, really from 85 to 2012 when I left. And then I started teaching at a couple of other universities, a private school, in a university in Decatur called Millican University, which has a very good commercial music program. And I got to teach music business and that kind of thing. And then for a while I taught there at Parkland Community College and at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, Illinois. And then I ended up moving there. And that was also very lucky and amazing because I, when I got there, they had just completed building a $70 million art center in a town of 35,000 people. This is a, I think it's 250,000 square foot center with a concert hall and a orchestral rehearsal hall and a, you know, recital hall, all these different rooms and pro tool system and PMC monitors and so forth. And I got to do one of the best things that can happen to a recording engineer, which is record a lot of acoustic music. Mm, yeah. Symphonies and quartets and operas and choirs and, uh, you know, theater pieces. That was a wonderful experience. So, yeah, I, I did get to teach before I got here and all of it was really fascinating. But at Eastern, it, again, it was wonderful teaching there, but I was teaching uh, music majors about music technology and not necessarily people who wanted to be audio professionals. I had much the same experience. I went to Berkeley College of Music and then I, I became a teacher because I had, from my previous life as a player, I had lots of studio experience and I had a degree in electronics already, so I knew where all the electrons were flowing and all that. But, you know, there's acoustic music all over the place. So recording big bands and string quartets and all that stuff, orchestras, li- live events through the performance center and all that. You know, I cut my teeth and all that too. So not that I've done it in a long time because I haven't, but, you know, it wouldn't take me but, you know, a second to remember how it all worked, you know. And and a lot of it is the fact that once you've done it, you sort of get that imprint, like riding a bike, you know. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, I know the way that's supposed to sound. Okay. Well, it's an amazing chance to learn about balance. Yeah. And to learn about dynamics and frequencies and acoustics and air, uh, microphone placement. And using your ears just to, to listen, because if you're just freelance, or if you're just sort of freely recording abstract things like a rock band or electronic music that can sound like anything, it's, it's a great challenge to record something that needs to sound like the uh, original sound, you know, when you have something to compare it to. And that, that's a good test and a good way to develop one's technique, I think. When you moved to Nashville, was it specifically to take over at Blackbird? It was to establish a school at Blackbird. There was none. So uh, during all this time of teaching in my studio and elsewhere, I had been dreaming of a school and how I thought it would be, we could best teach audio. And 
I would take my students from Decatur, Illinois, to Nashville and Memphis to take them to places where it was really happening because Decatur's, uh, there's not a huge music scene there. So in that process, I'd made a, a, quite a few friends and I encountered John McBride who had this unbelievable studio and made friends with him. And, had, uh, you know, he was very kind to my students and he would, t- whenever Martina McBride was touring around, he would come in and talk to the students or we'd bring us into shows and that kind of thing. So when he decided that he was going to open the school, he called me, luckily. Uh, it, uh, it was a, a moment, an inflection point in my life when she was playing in Champagne. I called him up to see if he would talk with the students. And he said, yes. And then, you know, how are you? Fine. He says, um, you know, I've just been really unhappy with the quality of interns that we're getting who have spent a lot of money and spent a lot of time and don't seem to know anything. They don't have the first clue of how to make a drum set. And worst of all, how to behave, what to say, what not to say, how to fit in, what to do. They just seem completely clueless to me. And he said, I'm the kind of guy that I can either complain about it or do something about it. So I'm going to start a school. And I said, without hesitating, John, I'm going to be your teacher. And it took a few years to get it together, but I quit my university job and sold the building that we owned by then and quit all my jobs and moved down here to do this. Uh, and it was, was a sec- as I say, the second best thing I've ever done next to marrying my wife. So. You know, that's a similar story to Nimbus in Vancouver with Bob Ezrin. Mm-hmm. They couldn't find good interns. It was the same thing. It was like, well, let's do something about it. And they have a, a fantastic school as well. But it's coming from the right place where you have people who've been there, done that, knows and know what's supposed to happen and why it's supposed to happen. Which, unfortunately, most schools are not like that, as we both know. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there's, there's a lot that we can't do. Our, we have a six-month program, and so people aren't going to get a, a four. They just don't have four years to mess around, and they're not going to get a lot of other types of education. But in the time that we have, we try to teach them as much as we can and give them as much real-life experience as we possibly can. And we're just, I'm so fortunate to be here. And the other faculty that ended up coming in, we had Kevin Beckham until he died, who was a, a, an amazing teacher and awesome human being. And uh, everybody else that's involved with the school are just so experienced and have such great attitudes so far. So I I'm, I'm feel very, very lucky to get to be here and to get to be in this amazing place in this amazing town surrounded by amazing humans. And at Blackbird, whoever doesn't live in Nashville, many of them eventually end up coming through the studio. And then uh, next thing they know, I've got them by the collar and I'm dragging them into the classroom to talk with the students. Uh, and, you know, when people move here, a lot of times they end up calling us for interns and then I rope them in. So it's not just me teaching what I know. I'm able to bring in all these people who are much smarter and more experienced than I am to educate the students. And the students get multiple viewpoints and multiple sets of information on how to approach something or how to mix or how to think about things and how to interact with people. And it's been wonderful for me because I've learned so much since I've been here. I have notebooks filled with information that I've been lucky enough to be exposed to. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Your students that you get, how experienced are they? Completely variable. We get some people that have never touched a knob, don't know much at all. We get people that have been through other programs. We get people that have had recording studios and worked in the field. It's, it's all over the place. The usual age is typically, you know, just post high school, college age people. But we often have 
of older people. We had a 65-year-old guy come in. He retired as a petroleum engineer and came in to take both our programs, the live program and the studio program. And he's fantastic and does all kinds of fantastic work. Some of our best students have been the ones who knew nothing. But And we don't really select people on the basis of what they already know, because in some cases, it, they have to, it takes more work for them to unlearn it, what they uh, have gathered so far. Uh, what we're really looking for is attitude and intelligence and interpersonal skills. Those are the things that we think it's built on. We can teach them how to operate a virtual system. We can tell them about all the different kinds of microphones. They learn an awful lot by all the hands-on work that, that they do here. They do their own projects in Blackbird Studio. You know, the classes where they're 50% of the program is just doing sessions hands-on. And it's in Blackbird Studio. It's not that we hung the name Blackbird Studio on some room that had a, some an irrelevant console on it or something like that. They're actually working in these same rooms that, you know, Rush and Willie Nelson and White Stripes and everybody recorded. So, but some of the people that have the least experience have done the best. We have a graduate of whom I'm very proud who... When she came into the program, her experience was she's a figure skater. And she had cut the songs together for her routines. That was how much she knew about audio. And then when she got out of here, she became an uh, intern and then assistant at the tracking room, which is the largest studio in Nashville, sadly now for sale. But she had a great run and she's a great engineer. And mainly, I think, on the basis of being a wonderful person, but it helps to be exposed to all the things that, and all the people that we get to meet here. Do the students that you get feel like they want to be more in the electronic side or or they have an affinity for real players playing? It's highly variable. We we get so many different people and we have international students as well. We get bluegrass players who want to record acoustic instruments. We get a lot of people who don't necessarily want to be engineers or producers. They, they want to be artists who are making their own records and they want to do whatever they do. We do get a lot of people who, you know, have, are coming from the electronic side. They've, they're interested in beat making and Ableton and that kind of thing. And it's something new to them to interact with living and breathing musicians and rooms and microphones. And in some cases, in many cases, they get very excited by it and it opens worlds to them. So it's really all over the place. We get so many different people and so many with so many different goals. And of course, those can change in the course of all the, the people and interesting experiences that they have in the time they're here. Now, I can make an argument for the fact that if you're a student and you're just starting out and you're starting out in Blackbird, your reference point is set really high. You know what something should sound like. You know what, when it sounds really great. On the other hand, I can also make a point that will they ever get it that good again? And will that be discouraging? Yeah, I mean, that's something that we think about a good deal. And I would say a few things about that. First of all, a number of our graduates end up working at Blackbird oh. uh, or, or other big studios. We've got people all over the world working for some of the biggest producers and engineers. So some of them do end up in, in fancy studios with fancy consoles and that kind of thing. The, uh, John McBride, our beloved leader, says... And he holds his hand up in the air. He says, you, know, you want to know where the bar is. The bar isn't down here. The bar is up here. You want to know how good it can sound. And, how, and you want to be, I would say, I would extrapolate that to say, to be around excellence is good for everyone. To be around people, and I don't include myself in this. I'm just lucky to be here. But 
you know, to get to be around people who are excellent, surpassingly excellent at what they do is so inspiring. And it, it does set the, the bar high because you can realize there are people who function at that level. And there's really no reason that any of us can't function at that level. We, we need to. Um, and there are a few other things, which is, you know, we also, one of our mottos is, it's not the wand, it's the wizard. That, uh, you know, yes, we have great consoles and microphones and rooms and so forth. We have great tools at Blackbird. That's not what makes Blackbird great. It is, it's more great because we could have all those same tools, but if the attitude and the staff and the maintenance and so forth weren't what they were, it wouldn't be what it is. So I think for, the, you know, for them to, uh, to realize they can get great results without necessarily having to sit in front of a million-dollar console. Also, we do a certain number of, of recording where we, where we go minimal because we realize that. You know, uh, so we have rooms that are fairly that are fairly minimal that they can use in the evenings where there's you know a few preamps or there's a 16 channel console, and we also do projects where you know we just record everything with 57s because we can. We we do a whole project where we just improvise with it's essentially music concrete. We just improvise with objects and make recordings uh, because I do want them to get the idea that you can make amazing music with whatever is in with, is within reach. And if you have one microphone and a beanbag and a cardboard box, you can make a great record with that. And, and we do. So we, we try to cover the whole gamut, I guess you could say. How long did it take you to formulate the program? About six months. But, you know, I have to say, I'd been dreaming of it for so long that it was already in my head. And I was so lucky. And, I, and you know, obviously the school is not just me because there are so many other people involved. Uh, it was mainly Kevin Becker and I that hammered it out together. Um, and that, that took some doing, but it really took longer to do the paperwork for the state mm. than it did to come up with what we were going to teach and how. And, you know, partly, I mean, by the time I'd gotten, I'd gotten here, I was all, I'd already been teaching for 30 years or whatever it had been, you know. Uh, so I already had a, a framework for how to do it. And I was just able to fill it in and add in the things that I'd always wanted to cover. And it is constantly changing. We've been, we're in getting close to having had the school open for eight years. And I'm still looking at the curriculum all the time, looking at all the presentations, changing angles, changing ways of expressing it, putting in new information as it comes along. And also just trying to make it as effective, just trying to see what connects with the students and make it as effective as we can. Because we have such a short period of time, I call it a freeze-dried education. You know, there's these sort of, compact packages of philosophy and knowledge. And I do still hear back from students that were in the program five years ago, and they'll say, I'm, you know, I'm still looking over my notebooks, and what does this mean? Or, you know, now I realize why it was important to know that. And so mm. forth. How much is immersive audio a part of the program? It's relatively small at the moment. We do have an Atmos studio, Studio C here, the George Massenberg Room. It's relatively small still. But they do get experience mixing in there. They get to do some immersive mixing and figure out how it's done and, and uh, you know, make stuff with around the room and so forth. We may very well be teaching more of it. You know, we're working with Dolby and so on. Uh, at the moment, we've got six months of five days a week. And so we have to cover as much of the fundamentals as we possibly can. And there's just so much that we cover in that time that we, you know, you could take, we could take six months 
teaching an immersive audio, we could take six months teaching any of these subjects and not get to the bottom of it. So I tell them it's essentially sort of like running down a hallway, opening doors and going, here's the world of acoustic design. And we'll spend a week talking about it. But anyone could go through this door and spend the rest of their time in this meadow. And then, and so forth. So, so far, immersive audio is a fairly small part, but we certainly have the capability of teaching and demonstrating of course, I, I went through the original 5.1 surround sound thing. I was an, an active player in it for a long time and uh, suffered from the, the problems that we, we all suffered from. The teething problems, which there's far less of that now, which is really good. And, you know, as far as gear and implementation, it's very easy. But the ultimate problem is selling it to the public. And... It seems like, at least for music anyway, it's the, the same thing all over again. For gaming and things like that, different story. But I always felt that it was never going to take off until we had some sort of new playback technology that was not transducer-driven. Mm-hmm. And there's some that's very interesting that unfortunately has limited bandwidth, but essentially what it is is making your walls into a speaker. And... You know, everything is a breathing transducer surface, which seems to me like that would be the ultimate, the, the ultimate situation for immersive audio and, and for anything. And until we get to that point, I don't know that if immersive is going to be, in, you know, go beyond the, those particular genres, uh, those particular areas of film and, and gaming. I have many thoughts on the subject. Uh, you know, as far as reproduction goes, if you think about it, everything that we perceive with our hearing is a result of two instantaneous air pressures, one at each eardrum. So if we're walking through a forest or we're walking down a street or we're in a concert hall, everything that our brain perceives having to do with sound, location, frequency, tuning, timbre, layering, lyrics, everything is just a result of air pressure on one side, air pressure on the other. So my feeling is that we can, that we should be able to, and pretty much can, reproduce any sound field if we just move people's eardrums in the proper patterns. Mm. What that has to do with, though, is their head-related transfer function. So what is the sound? How far apart are their ears? What's the size of their ears? What's the resonance of their ear canal? How does sound diffract around their face and shoulders? And how, uh, how solid is their head? All of that sort of thing. That is fairly easily measured these days. And there's an AES standard called, well, there's an AES standard for storing something called a SOFA file, S-O-F-A, which is essentially a little digital representation of the sound of each person's individual hearing. And my feeling is that the end goal of immersive audio should be binaural, because that's how we hear. Yeah. There are various difficulties with it, but I think... In that way, you could record essentially with a binaural head if you wanted to. That would just be, or really a, a ball with an omni mic on each side of it. And then if you played it back over your, from over your ears, not inside your ear canal, either the outside of the ear canal or over your ears, and you modeled everything but the resonance of the ear canal, we should be able to perfectly reproduce the sonic effect of being there with some possible differences. I mean, one difference is we have body resonances and we feel low end through our feet and so forth. Another problem with that, which is easily solved that people have been dealing with for years is that we can move our head, right? When we're in a, when we're in a free field, we move our head around, we do it naturally. 
and the world doesn't move with us if we turn to the right the the, the world doesn't go with us right the world stays in one place uh, but that's fairly easily done with head tracking so i think that the the basics of getting convincing immersive sound of any kind were established in 1931 by bloomline uh, and we've had all the technology we needed to do it since then. And I think that it, as long as if, as they say, Dolby, as Dolby says, the end game is earbuds, which people already have. It's already on everybody's phones. It's already in Amazon and Netflix built in. It's almost why wouldn't you be immer choose to be immersed in sound? Or quite frankly, you could just turn it on or off. So my theory is that everyone... We'll have the chance to go to an audiologist's office or there'll be a little booth at the mall. You go in, they stick some miniature mics in your ears. They take your head-related transfer function. You put that file on your listening device. And then you hear everything as if you were in the environment in which it was recorded. But here's the problem. How do you market it? What that means is this is not something that you can describe. You have to experience it. So that means unless you experience it, you don't get it. Now, immediately you get it when you hear it, but convincing people to do that is the problem. I have a couple of theories. I think, I think you're exactly right. When, when people hear it, they understand. And the thing that makes me more hopeful about uh, Atmos than I was even about 5.1 or, or Wisteria is just when I take people into Studio C and I play them Rocket Man in Atmos, a large percentage of people cry. Mm, yeah. It's very emotionally affecting. I don't even know why that is. I mean, partly I think it has to do with that song but, and that it starts out stereo and then when it expands, their brain expands. But a lot of people cry. And I think that it comes down to really all music, in fact, all of human behavior, it comes down to sort of basic Skinner psychology. You know, you're pushing a little lever waiting for some rewards. And if you get something positive, you'll keep pushing the lever. And Music goes directly to our amygdala and limbic system. Pleasure, motivation, emotion, joy, all the sorts of things. I mean, that's why people love music. So people like every animal are attracted to positive experiences. You know, chocolate, food, sex, whatever. And deterred by unpleasant experiences. So I think if somebody hears this, they're... Neurons all fire, and their brain goes, yes, I want more of this. It's the same thing as drugs or chocolate. Music is a substance. Um, and even if they don't know it, if up to now the process of listening has been something that's band-limited, over-compressed, and that's essentially kind of an over-distorted, and it's a kind of an assault, their brain goes, I'm tired of this, or it's unchanging, and the brain goes, I'm bored. So I think just exp ex exposing people to it, and that's really easy to do because everybody has the means to do it with them. They've got a phone and a set of, uh, of earbuds. What's interesting is the, the most viewed blog post I ever had was called When a 20-Year-Old Hears a Vinyl Record. And actually what it was was an excerpt of an article that I read out of the UK. And it was an example of a 20-year-old female who went to a party with friends and they had vinyl records that they were playing and it blew her mind. And she was never the same after that. She had to have more. So it was her explanation of this, of like, wow, why, why have I not been exposed to this up until now? 
I had that experience many times. It was beautiful, uh, especially in Champagne, where I had a set of Dunwavy speakers in the mm. control room. And one of the very first things I did was I just played them a beautifully recorded song on these Dunlavy speakers. And you could see the light bulbs come on and you could see the synapses forming. You could just see the pleasure centers going off. Just this feeling of, where has this been all my life? I can't believe it can sound like this. Uh, and so before Atmos, and maybe even now, I had a theory that the way to revive the music industry, if it needs reviving, depending on which part of it you're talking about, the way to revive the music industry was to have a truck with a really comfortable couch and a pair of great speakers. And you would drive to high school parking lots and malls and somebody could walk on there and you'd give them a chocolate chip cookie, which is really sneaky as that sets off their pleasure centers. And then you play them some amazingly beautifully recorded stuff on the speakers and, the, and their brain goes, I must have that. And then instead of saying, okay, well, you can have it for free. You say, you know, it's, it'll cost you that I don't care if I, you know, I will do anything to experience this again. I mean, I've really seen that, that happen with people where that revelation of what this experience is and how great it can be. With the cookies? Both. Cookies and music. <laughs> okay. Well, that's part of my theory for, uh, for uh, maintaining world peace by making the chocolate chip cookie the international currency. Oh, there you go. Right, right. Tell me about your book. I'm writing a book for Roman Littlefield, which used to be Hal Leonard. It's called The Great American Recording Studios. It's a history of recording studios from 1960 to 1980, which was an amazing period. And things changed a great deal in those 20 years. And I'm trying to write about a lot of studios, as opposed to just picking 10. So I'm currently struggling to keep the list below 165 recording studios. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I'm choosing which ones to write more about. Some of them maybe are smaller studios, but they're more they illustrate some of the music there or some of the great music of the period came out of them. It's been an amazing experience getting to talk with people who were there and doing research on all these amazing places at such an amazing time where music was very important. Records really were very meaningful. There was very little in the way of established methods of doing things. There was almost no audio education. It was a very regionalized world where Memphis was a completely different world from San Francisco. And that was a completely different world from Seattle, from, from Miami, you know, and if you walked into a studio, it was something entirely different in many cases to follow the development of from essentially mono at the beginning, you know, around 1960 mono, maybe three tracks to synchronize 24 tracks by the end and the income, you know, the incoming of digital systems and so forth. It's just an amazing journey. It would be a lot easier to write if it were a nine-volume encyclopedia. The main difficulty of writing the book has just been trying to uh, boil it down and not throw away all the lovely stuff and the lovely stories that I wish I could tell. But um, one of the great things about this book, which I inherited from Howard Massey, is uh, that I get to tell studio stories and anecdotes. And, uh, of course, there are great ones from that period. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You know, it's funny, when I first moved to Los Angeles, it was 1980, and there was something that every studio had. It was called the studio menu, the recording studio menu, which was put out by, I believe, Audio Rents, and it was just a collection of the phone numbers of every studio in town 
commercial studio that was at the time 24 track. And when I counted them, there were 220. Wow. Just in Los Angeles. Yeah. But it was interesting. I, and I just found this recently. I was cleaning out my garage and I found this. And I'm looking through and I'm thinking, oh, I remember that. I haven't thought about that one in a long time. That was a good one. And, you know, so few of them are still around. It's a real shame. Yeah, it's a different world now. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's important because, you know, we lost Al Schmidt this week. Yeah. Uh, if there's anyone on the Mount Rushmore, the George Washington on the Mount Rushmore of audio engineers. And so I think it's, I look at this as being very important and timely, if not slightly as uh, later than I wish I were doing it, method to convey what it was like and what those places were like and what those people were like and how all that amazing music was made. The recordings are there, but it's remarkable how undocumented most of those studios were, how few photos there are, how little information. It's odd because, as I say in the introduction of the book, we are in the business of documenting things. That's what recording is. But it's surprising how little information there is there. So I'm trying to get as much of it as I can while I still can. I can't wait to read it. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, Mark. Best piece of business advice that perhaps someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? This isn't going to sound like business advice, it's, but it was life advice and business is life. I was, we'd started this silly recording studio and I was supposed to go to law school. I was accepted to law school. I was getting ready to go. And, but I really loved this idea of being in a recording studio that we had. And I loved the process. And of course I was playing in the silly rock band and loved that as well. I was struggling to decide what to do. And I ran into a musician who I respect very much, a guy named Rocky Moffat, in a hippie coffee shop with granola, 24-hour you know, hippie coffee shop with backgammons and so forth. And I'm standing in line and he was there. And I just asked him for some advice. You know, I'm struggling to decide what to do. I think I might go into the foreign service. I'm supposed to go to law school, but I'm really enjoying this thing. What should I do? And the advice was, follow your heart. He was absolutely right. I followed my instincts. I would have been miserable as an attorney. I would have enjoyed law school, but I would be miserable as an attorney. And I'm very happy that I took his advice. And the rest of it, miraculously and due to sheer dumb luck, and I guess a lot of work, has followed. And somehow I've been able to get by all this time without having to have a real job and getting to do things I love and getting to be with people that I love and admire and being able to share information with students and see them thrive is a magnificent thing to get to do. So that was some of the best advice I ever received. You can find out more about Mark at either Blackbird Studios or pogostudio.net, P-O-G-O studio, all one word, dot net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey,